Ephesians 4, verses 7 through 16. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is one is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, and to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. But rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is the word of the Lord. Last week we began with a simple observation that our culture is fractured with conflict and division. And those are similar things but different. Conflict I think of as that open hostility with people facing each other and there's animosity and there's arguing and there's even fighting and killing and all kinds of like head-to-head butting heads, Okay. The division is this thing where instead of attacking and devouring, we also just cancel people or cancel groups of people. We treat them as if they no longer exist, okay? And we were talking last week as we came back to Ephesians after the winter break that the church should stand as a unique counterculture to the conflict and division of the world, Paul said in our text last week, which preceded where we began this morning, that the church is characterized by humility, gentleness, patience, forbearance, and peacemaking. We are called to preserve and practice the unity of the Spirit. And notice I say the unity of the Spirit, because we began to stick our toe in this idea last week of we're not talking about unity just for the sake of unity, nor are we called to be unified with everyone about everything. There is a unity that the Spirit of God has created and seeks to uh, restore, seeks to reconcile us to one another, as we just said in our worship time. And we are called to labor earnestly to preserve and to continue to practice and grow what it is that God has already given us in this gift of unity. Now, we're going to go on from the theme of unity this morning, or continue in the theme of unity this morning, because this is really, remember, this is a letter that he wrote to a church in Ephesus. If you're like, what are these pictures? It's like part Denver and part Ephesus ruins that Paul would have seen. And so there's no break between verse 6 and verse 7 where we started this morning. This thematically is continuing to run through the theme of unity. And kind of the two big ideas that form the scaffolding of the text that we come to this morning are the title. And that is the roles and the goals of unity. So when I say the roles of unity, I mean, what role do each of us play? What what are the different roles that we play to come together and, and preserve and practice the unity of the church? And then goals is like, what is the point? Why are we doing this? 
Why are we trying to preserve the unity of the church to begin with? What are our objectives? Okay, so roles and goals of unity. And um, I'll start with roles. And I'll start there with the most cryptic part of the text. What is all this ascending and descending stuff in the first few verses that just seems out of place? That's like, how does that connect the unity that you were talking about before and then this differentiation that comes afterward? And I mean, a couple of key things. First, I want you to see that we're talking about Jesus Christ. He says, Christ is the one who descended and ascended far above the heavens. The descended part is simply a reference to the incarnation, which is a big fancy word for saying like there was a point in time approximately 2,000 years ago where the eternal son of God, Christ, became a man, Jesus of Nazareth. And that was his descent, as Paul says, into the lower parts or into the earth. Then the ascension part of that is after his death and resurrection, you know, a number of days later, Jesus was together with his apostles, with his disciples, and he ascended to heaven where the scripture says he's seated at the Father's right hand with all authority and power given to him. Okay, so you're tracking so far. That's the, that's the descended, that's the ascended. Now look at verse 8. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men or humankind. Okay, what's that about? Who are the captives? What are the gifts? What's, what's this got to do with the ascension? This is not immediately obvious, but Richard kind of gave you a little teaser in his worship portion that Paul is quoting Psalm 68. Okay, you can probably see if you have a study Bible in your footnotes that it's referencing Psalm 68, 18 in particular. Psalm 68, if you were to back up and look at the whole thing, and I encourage you to do that with your gospel community groups this week, is a Psalm of David that is recounting God's authoritative power and rescue in the days of the Exodus. So it's like God is, by his power, he's delivering the Jews from bondage in Egypt and he's leading them across the desert. And here they are at Sinai and they're receiving the law. And then finally, there's this climactic moment in verse 18 where it's like, and God has openly triumphed over his enemies. And he takes these spoils of war that he receives from defeating his enemies and he gifts them to his people as they move into the promised land. Now, here's a a few interesting things that Paul does with Psalm 68. Number one, where Psalm 68 is referring to Yahweh, God, as the one who has ascended on high, leading this host of captives, Paul says Jesus did. Secondly, instead of saying Paul, or instead of saying Jesus led a host of captives, he, he literally adds another word, and in the Greek it would sound like this. He took captivity captive. We'll come back to that in a moment. But the idea, Jesus captured what had previously captured his people. The idea of taking captivity captive. And then thirdly, Paul says instead of receiving gifts from his conquered enemies, Jesus is giving gifts to his church. Now, if we put it all together then, and we're saying, okay, why did Jesus, why did God come to earth? Why did he descend in the first place? And there are many right answers, but in the context of what he's talking about here, he's like, Jesus came to earth and became a human being to defeat the enemies that were crushing us. Okay? So enemies that held us in bondage, imprisoned us, like sin imprisoned us, the power of sin, the, the ever-present nature of sin. The penalty of sin. We were bound under all those things and could not free ourselves. 
um, Satan and just demonic powers, they are greater than us on our own. Hell and death and all these things, like Jesus is coming to earth to conquer sin and death and the adversary and hell and all of that. So when Jesus rises from the dead and ascends, Paul paraphrases Psalm 68 to say, Jesus took captivity captive. In other words, all these things that captivated you and me, he has taken those things captive. So he's like, I will bind the sin that bound you. I will put to death, death. I will triumph over Satan and the powers of hell. And none of these things that previously imprisoned you can continue to imprison you because I have imprisoned them. Now, what's really further interesting about this gifts part is that in the Jewish synagogue liturgy, Psalm 68 had come to be associated with Pentecost. So 40 days after Passover, they had this other feast. And it came to be a time where the Jews really celebrated God's giving of the law on Mount Sinai through Moses. And there was even a belief, there are these writings called Targums, where different rabbis are writing like a commentary, essentially. And there, be, there came to be these beliefs that whenever the true Messiah comes, maybe around Pentecost, he'll give us a new law. Like this new law will come down. And now we'll really know how to be free because we won't just have the law of Moses. We'll have a new law. And what's interesting is if you know the story of Acts in those early chapters, well, what happened at Pentecost? This feast that they associated with the giving of the law, as Christ has ascended back to heaven, instead of giving more law, what does he give? He gives his spirit. He sends his spirit as the ultimate gift not just to be present with us, but to be in us, to be for us. And he gives these miraculous, we call them now spiritual gifts to his followers so that they could preach and speak in tongues. They could heal. They could do all these incredible things together by the power of the Spirit. And that, that seems to be Paul's point here. Basically, in the big picture, what he's saying is the same God who came down and humbled himself and died on a cross and rose from the dead to bind everything that binds you, to defeat everything that defeats you, he sits on the right hand and he has sent gifts. So trust this Jesus, receive his gifts, and exercise them for the good of his body, his family, the church. And there's two important things there. So the, the first of these roles is Christ. Okay, there'll be three, three roles here. The first is Christ. And what we see is Christ gives diverse gifts to the church, verses 7 through 11. So number one, Christ is both the source of the gift. And number two, he also gave different gifts to different people. It says according to the measure or the standard of his grace. So not everyone received exactly the same thing. There's a differentiation of gifts. And you know that in practice. But I think an important application of that is if, if the God who has given me the gifts he's given me and he's given you the gifts he's given you, then instead of just being perpetually bummed out that I don't have certain gifts and that you do, or worse yet, being envious or jealous of someone else's gift and being arrogant and just trying to say, well, I, I want that gift, the, the spirit of what he's saying here is the sovereign God who descended and then ascended and sent his spirit and gave us this gifts. He chose what gifts he wants each of you to have. So receive your gifts and employ those gifts without frustration, but w without fear as well. Like the church needs 
your gifts because God has chosen to give them to you. It's kind of like this if everyone in the symphony orchestra wants to be first chair violin. And there's like, I mean, if you know, that, that's like the role in the orchestra besides the conductor, right? First chair violin. Well, if everybody wants that role and no one's willing to be second chair and third chair and fourth chair and then playing the second part and maybe playing the third part and then there's bass and all these other instruments and there's percussion filling in, if everybody is struggling with one another and not unifying around who actually is first chair violin, then there is no symphony, there's just noise. And God is designing a symphony. Okay, now let's transition to the second role which is um, pastors and teachers. And then I'll come to like kind of the congregation as a whole. And I I wanted to say this about as we go on through these roles and just acknowledge that our kind of Western progressive consumer culture tends to view church just like another product, right? Like I have this conversation with people almost weekly. It's like, well, we're we're shopping for a church now, and we use that term. And I'm not that offended by it. I know what you mean. Like you're you're new to the area, you're looking like what what family, what local group of believers does God want me to attach to and commit to? But we still we use that term. Like I'm shopping for a church, or I'm shopping for a new church. And very often this attitude culturally amongst Christianity is, I'm looking for a place where we pay professionals to do the work of ministry and then I kind of show up and it's your job to feed me and then I go home I go off to my week and do other stuff and then I come back when I choose to which probably isn't every week and get fed again when I feel like I need fed and so there's this this like gross separation of roles in cultural Christianity where it's like the role of paid professionals is to do the work of ministry the role of the congregation is to show up every once in a while and get fed um, it's like, I've, I've heard this analogy of like, we, we treat church like a professional football game where 70,000 people desperately in need of exercise watch 22 people desperately in need of rest. <laughs> and that's not the way God designed it. Okay, so let's look at verses 11 and 12. And it's saying, and he, so this is the Jesus who descended and ascended. He gave apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And I'll just take a moment with this, but you notice this differentiation of roles. Apostles, first of all, means sent ones. And in the strictest sense, the apostles were the group of like just a few people in the first century who were eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus, or they were eyewitnesses at least to the resurrected Jesus, I should say. Okay, so there's special sent ones. Prophets, We think of a prophet as someone who tells the future, like a foreteller. But the primary role of a prophet was actually not foretelling, but more like forth-telling. Just like God told them, communicate this to my people. And they do. They're kind of a mouthpiece of God, receiving God's word, sharing it with others. Evangelists, and the word good news is actually tied up in this Greek word for evangelist. Someone who's gifted in sharing the gospel with non-believers and leading them to the hope in Christ And then kind of an interesting thing that happens grammatically in the Greek that you don't see as much in the English is that pastors and teachers probably are not two different roles, but are probably one role, pastor-teachers, almost like hyphenated. Pastors is literally the word shepherd. So you're thinking of someone who spiritually is doing what a shepherd does physically with a flock, like leading and nourishing and caring for, protecting 
a, a flock of Christians, a flock of Jesus followers, and then teachers, like instructors, okay? Now, I'm going to focus particularly on the pastor-teacher role, not because the others aren't important, but because in a every generation and every culture kind of sense, pastor-teacher is the role that certainly has been most commonly associated with local church ministry, which is what we are as a local church, okay? So to the degree that are still evangelists and prophets in the sense of, of forth-telling God's truth, and some people, again, not in the strictest sense, but in a, in a hand-me-down sense, some people still use the word apostle to say people sent as messengers from God. But let's focus on this pastor-teacher thing. And again, just by way of review, so Christ gives diverse gifts to his church. But then secondly, second role, pastor-teachers equip the church. And I want you to notice that right in verses 11 and 12. Jesus actually gave these people as gifts to the church, not to do the work of ministry per se, but to equip others to do the work of ministry. And that word equip is kind of interesting. It is, the root word is the word for getting ready or preparing or outfitting something. And then it puts kata on the beginning of that word, which is like completely. You're completely preparing. You're completely getting other people ready or you're completely outfitting. And I, I think that, you know, the other day we took the boys skiing in a family of five skiers, we have a lot of stuff, as many of you do, like that ski, okay? So I don't view my role in my family when we go skiing as, like, I'm going to ski in front of the kids and they can watch me ski. That'll be fun for everyone. No. Uh, I view my role as, like, the kids have all this stuff and the boys are still young and so last year, Marty bought them each their own, like, giant duffel bag. And my role is to make sure everything's in the duffel bag. And it's like, they need their balaclava, and they need their underlayers, you know, the thermal layers up against their skin, and they need their gloves, and they need the warm socks, and they need their ski boots, and they need their poles, and they need their skis. And you just go right through uh, snow pants, heavy coat is your ski pass that, you know, reads on the little machine. Is it in a pocket that's zipped shut? So you're not going to lose it today. And I'm like, okay, if, if everything's in the bag, then we are ready to go and we will have a fun day because then they can ski and they can stay warm when it's like freezing cold, like it was the other day in copper. And they just, they have a great time. So you understand that, that idea of like making sure they're fully outfitted to go do what they want to do or to go do what the family's calling them to do, or what God is calling them to do. That's kind of this idea of what a pastor-teacher is primarily, is primarily doing in the body of Christ. So you should be hearing questions like this from elders. Do you, do you have everything you need to follow Jesus or to follow in apprenticeship to Jesus? Do you have everything you need? And if we're not explicitly asking that question, we're at least observing, watching, caring for to say, uh, we see a trend in our church family, and we want to better equip, which there could be a teaching component to that, a counseling, a coaching, a mentoring, an encouraging, like cheerleading components to all of this. But that's the idea of the pastor's role. Again, not to just go do all the work of ministry for the church and say, like, if it's worth doing, it's worth doing with a paid professional. That is not Jesus' heart for the church. His heart is, how are the leaders who lead you equipping you, outfitting you to live the life that God has called you to live by stirring up and encouraging your gifts, 
by finding places for them to be used in the church. Then as Christ gives these gifts, as pastor teachers equip believers, then thirdly, the third role, all believers serve and strengthen the church. Notice verse 12, Paul says, it is the saints. That's Paul's term for every believer. No matter how broken you are, no matter how sinful you are, you could be like, I'm still struggling with this. And Paul would be like, yes, but objectively in Christ, you're a saint. And he says, it's saints who do what? Who do the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. And there's three important words there. Work is like workmanship. It's something that requires effort. So he's like, the work of ministry. And, and I think that's important to hear because, friends, your role is not accomplished when you're like, well, I'm not, I'm not dividing the church. Like, I'm not causing controversy. I'm not causing the church to split because I'm not doing anything. And, and realize that God is not calling you to a passive role of not doing certain things. Or that's not remotely all he's calling you to. This is an active thing, not a passive thing. So he's like, activate your gifts, work hard. This requires energy. This requires effort. Now, what are you doing? He says the work of ministry, which I shared with our deacons yesterday, is the word deacon, diakonia. And he's like, not only is it their special role, but in a sense, God has given this role to everyone in the church. And diakonia simply means like, serve one another, minister to one another, help, support, contribute to one another and then for what? He says, for building up the body of Christ. And now he's like, now he's starting to mix metaphors between body and construction. Paul likes to do this. Okay, so now he's stealing a word from construction that's like if you're building something or you're strengthening something like a, a physical building or structure, then you're doing this word, oikotome. You're building up, okay? Um, we just... We just fully remodeled our house. There was a lot of construction. There was a lot of stuff that we identified that were like, this, this foundation was not done properly in the first place. And so while we'd like to build on top of it, the way to do this right, the way to do this by code, the way to do this so it's strong and it's stable is to tear this whole thing out and go deeper and do it all over again at much greater expense and much greater work. But this is the picture of what we're all called to do with a church is to look around and say, how is this church family stronger? How does this church look more like Jesus? Like the house that we are building together because of what I'm doing to serve the church. And I don't want you to hear that as like a rebuke. And I don't want you to hear that as like a guilt trip. I want you to hear that in the most hopeful and inspirational and encouraging way that Paul is like, hey, as pastor teachers equip you, Every single one of you has been given unique gifts. Like you may overlap with the people around you, but God has also done something uniquely in you where when you bring your gifts to the family, when you bring your gifts to the body and you activate them, work them, the body is being strengthened and constructed and is more healthy and is more flourishing. God plans to use you, whoever you are, okay? So all believers serve and strengthen the church. Now, we come to the second. So I said there are roles, but there are also goals. And I want you to notice three things that Paul says explicitly here. Before I get to that, like what he says are the goals, you may have noticed some people in our culture, you know, they recognize culture is very toxic. It's very divided. There's a lot of contention. And so they'll say something like this. Hey, we need to come together and we just need to be unified. Have you heard that kind of stuff? Like we just need to be unified. We should be unified as a country. 
Has anybody ever stopped and just been like, why? You say we need to be unified. Why? And it was just because we need to be unified. And, and by the way, you'll notice that the people who are saying we just need to be unified mean like everyone should be unified around my beliefs and my opinions and my perspectives. They don't mean I'm willing to give up a lot to unify with people who are very different than me, but they're, they're calling us to just some kind of unity. And as I said last week, unity is not inherently virtuous. Over the course of human history, we've united as, as people around some really horrible things like slavery. And I would venture to bet that the heart of Christ would be not where you should unite behind that evil because then you have unity. It'd be like, no, he wants you to stand up to the evil and fight the evil and say, I'm not going to unify with that. So we don't want unity for the sake of unity. And I don't think the value of unity is self-evident necessarily where we're just like, oh, we all get why it's so important because maybe it's good, maybe it's not. Unity is not an end to itself. So I think it's fair to ask and answer the question, why unity? To what end? What are we trying to accomplish? And notice Paul shows us three important goals of unity. What are we striving for? What's our objective? Number one, it's maturity, verses 12 and 13. Maturity. When someone comes to you, or hopefully not you, but comes to someone and says, grow up, what do they mean? Like, grow up. They're not saying you should put on more pounds. They're not saying you should get taller. They're not saying, you know, in a few years we'll add some chronological age. What are they saying? If they say grow up, they're saying stop being immature. And that's what Paul is exhorting the church. He's like, stop being immature. Because for Paul, maturity is not chronological age and it's not intelligence. We all know Old people and intelligent people who are not mature people in a holistic sense. Mature Christianity is not based off the number of years you've been going to church. It's not based on how much of scripture you read or even have committed to memory. According to our text, what does true maturity look like? It looks like Jesus. He said the whole purpose of being unified is so that together we are helping one another grow up into the fullness of Jesus Christ. We want to look like Jesus, okay? The reason that we call ourselves like students or followers or apprentices to Jesus is because we realize we're on a lifelong process of continuing to grow, continuing to follow, continuing to learn from, and continuing to look more like But again, I could pause and say, if maturity is this end goal of unity and of the church functioning together, how are the people around you, how are the people in your small group, how are the people that you haven't taken the time to get to know yet, how are they more like Jesus because of your investment in their life? And obviously you can't do this with everyone, but I would hope that in this coming year, you're able to point to people and not in a proud way, but just say, this person is looking more like Jesus because of my investment in them. And I'm looking more like Jesus because of their investment in me. This is a goal of unity. Okay, look at 12 and 13. Why are we doing this unity thing? He says, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, 
to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. He's saying, why did Jesus give gifts to his church? Why did he call pastors and teachers to equip the church? Why did he call every single one of you to serve and build up the church? It's ultimately so we become like Jesus. So we look like Jesus. And that's so important, by the way. We're going to do a whole series in the fall, and our back-to-school series will be on practicing the way of Jesus. What does it look like to live in apprenticeship to Jesus so that from week to week and month to month and year to year, we can look back and say, I'm not all that I want to be. And there's certainly areas where I don't yet look like Jesus, but I'm also, by his grace, not who I used to be. And I am growing to look more like him, to love the things that he loves, to do the things that he does. And, and by the way, I, I want to point out before I move to the next thing, this is very important. Paul is not calling you just to strive for this maturity in your own personal life. Like, okay, I'm going to read the Bible and I'm going to pray and I'm going to serve and that'll make me more mature. And that could or could not, depending on your attitude, actually, um, but, but that's not the spirit of what he's saying at all, okay? He's saying this sanctification, this growth in Christ-likeness is a group project. So you, you know group projects and you hated group projects? I hated group projects because you, what, what you can't do on a group project is be like, my entire team is mailing it in, so I'm just going to do my thing and turn in my own thing, and they can turn in their thing and be like, bam, I got an A+, and they got a C-. minus. So... You guys are immature losers. I'm mature and smart and talented, and I crushed it. It's like, no, no, no. If your team's getting a C minus, you are part of something that's getting a C minus. And so, what we don't want in the church, because God calls us out of this, is mature believers are not believers who look down on other people and think they are really immature. I wish they would get their act together. What is wrong with them? I am so much more mature. I wish they would be more like me, honestly. That is not maturity spiritually. A mature believer is someone who says, yes, maybe they are more immature. So I'm going to help grow and strengthen them. I'm not leaving because I see things differently and better. I see things the right way. I'm staying to invest in them because this is a group project. I hope that makes sense. Like, we are seeking to mature in Christ, but it's not just me looking down on you or you looking down on them or any of that. It's us pulling together as one family, as one body, saying we collectively want to grow to look more like Jesus. That's maturity. Um, second goal that he gives here, verse 14. Let me read the verse and I'll give it to you. He says, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. So he's saying, I don't want that. I don't want that instability. So what is the goal? The goal is stability. Stability. Uh, Marty's dad has a place up in Grand Lake. Many of you have been to it. When he first bought it, it was an old cabin, like, close to 100 years old, I think, old dock. This old dock was in several sections with joints between the sections, and it was a floating dock. So if you know the weather up there, pretty much every afternoon in the summer, you get a big squall come through, a thunderstorm, and the winds just pick up out of nowhere, and it gets crazy for a while, and the waves are huge, and you just get off the lake, and it's no fun, okay? Um, during one of those, you know, his dock is here, and it's floating, and it's kind of just doing this thing, like this, like crazy. It was the biggest storm, like, I've ever seen up there. 
and his, his boat, his very nice ski boat, was tied off to that dock. So as it's doing this thing, his boat's doing this thing, and Marty and I literally went out on the dock as it's like doing like this, and every time the water and the waves would pick up this boat and go to slam it down on the dock, we would just like shove back as hard as we could just to try to get it to land in the water. And the fiberglass on the side of this boat is just getting all torn to pieces by the metal edge of this dock, okay? Um, Since then, he's gone back and said, we need a different dock system that is not buffeted around by the winds and the waves. We need something that goes down and that can go in and fix to something so that as you pull your boat, as you pull your life up alongside, you're not doing this together, relying on something that's as unreliable and unstable as you are. So this, this is what he's saying. He's like, we got to go through life realizing, and he uses three words, this cunning craftiness, this deceitful schemes of the adversary that are just kicking us all over the place. They're buffeting us all over the place. Um, the, the cunning here is a really interesting word. It's cubea, which comes from cubos. And you might hear the word cube in there, cubos, and it's literally dice, but it referred to a fixed dice. So they would play games even in the ancient world and be like, okay, I'll bet you this, that these dice land on an odd number or an even number. And then they would throw the dice. And of course, the cheater, the cunning person, always wins in throwing the dice. And these other words are kind of like that. Craftiness is like trickery, intentional misrepresentation, deceitful schemes, literally uh, methodea. And you hear the word method is like strategies or processes to fool people. And what he's saying here is that we collectively as a church need to remember that our adversary is the father of lies. He loves tricking people. It's, it's his first thing in the Garden of Eden, coming to the first human beings and just lying to them, but, but not, not lying in a way that just looked to them like, oh, that's really bad. That's a lie. You're a liar. But coming to them in a beautiful way, a cunning way, a deceitful way, manipulating them ultimately to destroy them. And so what Paul's encouraging here is that as we are unified and growing up in maturity, we have to be aware of like theological fads that just blow in one day and blow out the next. And if, if you're constantly hearing like some novel new thing theologically, novelty in theology is not good. It's just really not. It's like we, we've had the, the canon of scripture for a couple thousand years. And that doesn't mean that previous generations didn't have like systemic generational faults to them or blind spots, because we know that is true. But if we're just hearing completely new ideas and we're like, oh, that sounds like the new thing. Like, I'm going to believe that about prayer. Like, that, that is the secret. And it's like, well, thousands of years of people who followed Christ never thought that was the secret. So it's probably not. Don't be led astray. Stick to simple theology that we are studying together as a church. Stability. As I talk about stability If your thoughts, your attitudes, your actions are not actively building up the stability of the family, then change. Like you are not called to introduce instability or unreliableness to the body of Christ. And it may be that you are self-deceived in thinking like, I'm the one that gets this and nobody else here gets this. 
But your actions, your attitudes are not contributing to the stability of the local church or the body of Christ in the big picture. So then something's off unity-wise. God calls you to this stability. Okay, so maturity, stability, and then verses 15 and 16, interconnectivity. So he says, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now, what I want to point out in this analogy, the body is, it's interesting to me that we are simultaneously growing both more connected to and more dependent on not just Christ, who is the head, but also one another. He's saying in a healthy church, your connectivity is not just this vertical thing. It's like me and, me and Jesus, you know, doing our quiet time together. Like, yes, there is that, but also a growing interconnectivity of I depend on these other people that are sitting around me and they depend on me. So I'm in and I'm reliable. People can trust that I am for them and that as I do what God has called me to do as a part of this body, the entire body is strengthened. The entire body receives what it needs. What's interesting is where he, where he says here, um, we are joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. And he's like, we have all these joints. Well, the, the word literally, and I think this is more interesting, it's literally the word ligament. It's not a joint like a bone-on-bone -bone joint. It's a ligament. And uh, in, in high school, I, in a basketball thing, I like tore my ACL. And they thought I had torn my meniscus. So they went in and do the surgery. They're like, oh, your meniscus looks good. And they turn the corner with the little camera. And they're like, oh, crab meat. Okay, that's not good. And I was like, what's crab meat? Why is there crab meat in my knee? And they're like, no, 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 that's your ACL and PCL exploded. So like, see, when we flood it with water, see how it's doing this? And it looks like crab meat. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's gross. That, that doesn't work. And they're like, okay, so we don't have time today to do a reconstruction. So we're just going to clean it out and send you on your way. And I'm like, well, I'm going to camp for the whole summer next week. So how's that work? And they're like, well, I don't know, wear a knee brace or something. Um, so I'm off. And I'll tell you, it, it was a summer filled with painful experiences. Because when you don't have a ligament holding bones together and you start exercising, what they do is they pull apart and then slam back together. And it's not a pleasant experience, okay? This is his picture. He's saying, Christian, this is who you are, whoever you are. You're like an ACL. And there are all these body parts that they can only do their thing, like being close, but also at the right distance, like giving space for each other so that the joint works properly. And then you can go get your exercise and you can be healthy. And I see this interconnectivity. Why, why are we unified? Because what I want to be doing, what you want to be doing, is like receiving this nutrient-rich blood, as it were, from the head, Jesus Christ, and saying, I pass it on, I pass it through. I get the nutrients I need, but I'm also a conduit so that you get the spiritual nutrients that you need. And you're doing this for me as I'm doing this for you, and we are interconnected, and the church is healthy, and the church is thriving. So that's the roles and goals. And I'm going to throw one, one bonus point on here just for fun. Um, so we have the roles of unity. We have the goals of unity. And uh, I'm going to just take a minute on each of these. We have the potholes of unity, okay? Roles, goals, and potholes, okay? You know, potholes. 
Um, you're driving along, and I keep doing this with my car because it's that time of year where you get like freeze thaw, freeze thaw, and big chunks of the interstate are missing. And I'm trying to pay attention, like more so than usual, driving to be like swerve around the pothole, and you just watch the guy next behind you just blow it up, you know. And like I've done this before, just knock the car completely out of alignment because of hitting a pothole. That's that's why I'm using this word in addition to the fact that it rhymes and it's fun. Okay. Um, <laughs> We can go through life like seeking the unity that God has for us. And there are these potholes where we hit them and, and everything is kind of knocked out of alignment that fast because we've hit one of these. And I'll just briefly show you three. The first pothole of unity is uniformity. Okay, when we start any of us thinking that the unity that we have in Christ means other people need to look and think and act and, and, and reflect an attitude, like, is, is everyone the same? Some of you would say, like, Enneagram is me. Oh, what's wrong? You're, I don't get along with eights and fives. I'm sorry if you're an eight or a five. I just, we should be more uniform. And maybe some people wouldn't actually say this, but if you're looking for some kind of cookie cutter, like black and white photocopy of Jesus in the church, that's not who the church actually is. And we don't want to conf- confuse what Christ is actually doing, which is unity in the midst of tremendous diversity. We don't want to confuse that with really what the world is after when they say diversity is they they really want uniformity. It's like line up and think the way I think. Act the way I act. If you're not believing the way I believe, then you need to change. And one of the reasons we do something like the Apostles' Creed that we'll do in a few moments is we're saying, here is a a body of teaching from Scripture that is very core and very basic, and we are united around what this says about our God. But we've got a lot of other stuff going on in the church where it's different, different opinions, different politics, different perspectives on things, different backgrounds that you bring to church that change the way you interpret things versus someone else. And a pothole would be constantly being frustrated because other people don't don't get it like you do. They're they're not, I've heard this one, the the other people in the church aren't passionate about the things I'm passionate about, so I'm going to leave. And it's like, well, maybe, and I'm I'm not making fun of that, maybe God gave you that passion and they gave them a different passion. And the reason why you see things that other people don't see is because God actually wants you to do something about it. He doesn't just want those other people to do something about it. I think it's beautiful that the church is variegated and multicolored and diverse and our passions are different and we can encourage and support one another. But if we're a body, that's exactly what I would expect to see is we have unique callings and giftings and interests and perspectives and passions, not uniformity. Second pothole is consumerism. And I warned about this earlier, but if you treat the church of Jesus Christ as just another product that you leverage for your own feeling good about yourself or your own idea of like, I grew this week. You will constantly be looking for a new flavor of the month when the local church no longer does for you what you're like, this is what it needed to do if it was going to keep my attention or my commitment. In the analogy of the body, a consumeristic attitude is parasitic You know what a parasite is? It's not just a free rider like a remora. Remora, at least I've heard, does nice things for the 
fish that it attaches itself to. A parasite is literally like, I'm attaching to you and I am sucking the life out of you. And the reason that I'm doing so fantastically well is because you're dying. And a consumeristic attitude is a critical attitude because instead of being a part of something and being like, yeah, I see the flaws too. I mean, anytime somebody comes and they're like, eh, this church is far from perfect. I have a problem with this. And I'm like, how much time do you have? Like, I probably see more than you do from the inside. Like, we could talk all day about problems because we are human beings doing life with other human beings. We are broken. We hurt each other. But we're not called to this consumerism. We're called to a symbiotic relationship. Sim is like with biotic life, bios, okay? We're doing life together, not consuming off each other, not criticizing each other, but contributing in grace, in all those attitudes we talked about last week. Um, And then finally, one other pothole is the absence of truthing or loving. And I say that on purpose. Verse 15, he says, speaking the truth in love. And what's interesting is truth there is actually a verb. So Paul is not just talking about speaking the truth or the truth. Many commentators have interpreted this as truthing. Like you do the truth. You don't just speak the truth, you do the truth. And many of you by experience know that love without truth can be shallow, sentimental. It's like, oh, we just love each other. It's like, how much do you love each other when no one in your group is willing to just stand up and say, stop, you are hurting yourself. You are hurting other people. Like, for the love of Christ, I mean that literally, change. And I'm here, I, I'm, I'm up for it. Like, I'm not leaving you because I say this, but, but we've got to change. We've got to follow Christ. So we don't want a shallow, sentimental, soft love that's actually not love, but a cheap substitute for love. On the other hand, truth without love is often very harsh. And it comes across as an attack or criticism. He's really saying, as we're doing this unified, symbiotic life, following Jesus and loving each other, we are truthing and loving. Now, let's close with this. Um, I shared this with the leadership team yesterday, but uh, our our boys' school, Augustine Classical Academy, is doing a a big play. They do an annual play. And it's kind of fun because it's like all the way from like kindergarten all the way through 12th grade. And the kids prepare these parts and they do this casting and, you know, certain kids, like a lot of kids try out and they don't get any role. Other kids are like, I wanted to be Cinderella and I'm uh, corral woman number three. And that's not that. And, and the director of the play sent a letter to the parents and was like, um, process this with your kids at home because some of them are disappointed. Some of them are elated. Just help your kids process. This is where someone who's directing the play placed you. And she's like, and now let's have fun with it. Because when corral girl number three, and I think Mike is like coachman, it's like when, when you do your role and then like there's a scene where Cinderella and the prince are doing this thing in front and the, the troop all knows their role to be like dancing or doing something in the background, then you have a narrative. You're telling a story together. And it depends not just on the key people, but it depends on everyone to tell that story together. I always thought this when I went to Hamilton, you know, and saw it in person. I would like fixate on like one dancer in the background and be like, that one person, like, yeah, you've got Alexander Hamilton and Aaron Burr and they're doing this big, but like, look at 
this dancing and the choreography that's going on in the background. And because that person is doing their thing so perfectly well, the whole thing, the, the whole story gets told. And I'm closing with this, that like Jesus is writing this big story of redemption and grace. And he hands different ones of you, different gifts, different roles. And when we do our thing in truth, in love, united for these goals that Paul spells out, it's not just the story of your life or your life or my life. It's the story of our lives that God is working grace in. May we each seek this unity for God's glory, but also for our joy, our flourishing, and so that our church t- together is telling this story of God's design and God's grace.